Okay, so today we are going to be in Job 40 and 41. Um, I think this will be an exciting passage for y'all because um, we're going to read about monsters. <laughs> but let me pray for us before, uh, before we get into it. Father, I thank you for your word and for the time that we have together to enjoy it to sit under it, to know you through it. And I, I thank you so much for this series in Job. It has been a hard one to preach um, because there is so much amazing truth in it, but also because there's a lot of hard things to understand because there's a lot of poetry and interpretive issues and things to, to dig through. But we thank you that so far our, our study of it has been so fruitful and so blessed. And I pray that it would continue to, to um, be so. I pray that you would um, be in our hearts right now as we open it up, as, as we endeavor to know you better through your word. And I pray that you would humble us and allow us to see you truthfully and treasure you. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Okay, so just a recap for what we've seen so far. We're in the book of Job because we're trying to understand suffering. And Job, if you remember, um, has been through the worst of it, even though he is a righteous man. His children, at this point of the book, and all the way at the very end, chapter 40, his children are dead. His possessions are gone. His body is falling apart. His mind and his theology are too. His friends have berated and ridiculed him for chapters on end. And time after time, he has cried out to God, even angrily, asking, why is this happening to me? God, where are you? God, how could you be doing this to me? God, how could you let this happen? And Job asks those questions because he believes that, so, that suffering is punishment for evil. He believes that if you do bad things, when, and if you do bad things, then God will punish you. And if you do good things, then God will reward you. So he looks at his circumstances and he says, well, there's obviously something wrong here. God must have made a mistake. I'm hurting. I'm being punished like a wicked person, but I haven't done anything wrong. And Job's thought is that if he could just get an audience with God, if God would just listen to him for a moment, then he could prove himself innocent and get God to stop punishing him. He thinks that he can set God straight. And finally, after chapters and chapters of debate and complaint and waiting, in chapter 38... God finally shows up, and he speaks from the whirlwind. And Job must be elated that he's finally getting that audience with God. But when he speaks, what God says is not at all what he expects. We saw last week that God doesn't give answers. He gives questions, a lot of rhetorical questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, God asks 
Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you entered into the springs of the sea? And question after question that resound with a silent but deafening no. God puts Job in his place. With image after image, God explains his creation, his maintenance and control over the world. And he shows Job that he has put justice in the fabric of the created order. He created the earth, he contained the sea, he makes the sun rise, he comprehends the expanse of the earth and its limits, he knows the dwelling place of light and dark, he controls the day of battle and war, the distribution of light and wind, and on and on, God proves to Job that he is in control. God, God's point is that Job, or he wants Job to orient his life around him. That when life doesn't make sense, Job must interpret life according to God's character and person, not the other way around. We saw that in response to God's glorious revelation of his power and his authority in the world, Job says in chapter 40, verses 4 and, f- four and 5, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. And really, the book could end here. God has asserted his authority over creation, and Job recognizes that God is God. But in our passage today, God continues. He has more to say. And my question is, why does God need to continue? He's asserted his authority over the created order, and Job has affirmed it. But if you're an astute reader, you might have noticed that God hasn't actually addressed Job's accusation yet. And that is specifically that he hasn't acted justly in Job's life because of the presence of evil. Job doesn't deserve any more speech from God. And in one sense, Job should have been comforted by God answering him at all. But we should also notice that Job hasn't repented yet. Yes, Job acknowledges that he is small, that he's insignificant in comparison to God, and he knows that he must not keep speaking. He's complained and he's ranted about his innocence and God's injustice for chapters, and he places over his hand over his mouth to ensure that he doesn't make the same mistake again. But... This is not an omission of wrong. He has not repented. It doesn't really show what Job actually thinks, and it doesn't show that he surrendered his complaint. And though he recognizes that he has no right to speak, Job has not given in. And I don't think God is satisfied with that either. Justice has not been addressed yet. And that's why God embarks on another speech, chapters 40 and 41. And in this speech, God presents two trials to Job. We're going to see two trials. And from these trials or these challenges, I just simply want to convince you of two things. I want you to be able to say that God is God and I am not. And that God rules over death and evil and is always just, even when I don't understand. Those are the lessons that God is teaching Job in this speech and the lessons that we need to learn ourselves. So I'm not going to be able to read the, the whole thing because it's a really long, um, but 
Let's start in verse 6. And this is point one, the trial of adorning majesty. God is God and I am not. That's the lesson. Verse 6 says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Here God says to Job, you put me on trial for the whole book, and now it's my turn. You questioned me, and now it's my turn to question you. And when he says, you will, even, will you even put me in the wrong, put another way, he's saying, will you even invalidate my justice? Like I mentioned, this is the main issue that God wants to address. Yes, Job has suffered. Yes, Job's suffering is terrible. And yes, he has sat on the ash heap of his life and mourned and wept. And it's a good thing that Job has cried out to the Lord. But where did he go wrong? Job went wrong in that his, he accused God of being unjust. Job looked around at his circumstances, the death and the loss and the suffering, and he looked at himself and his sin, or and his lack of sin, and his lack of deserving such calamity, and he said, God is doing something wrong here. God is not just. God is not acting in, accord, in accordance with his supposed goodness. God has messed up in his control over the world. God is wrong to have done this to me. And haven't we all said the same things before? How could God be good but allow this in my life? But what does God say in response to us and Job? In essence, when Job questions God's justice and his goodness, God says, put your money where your mouth is. Job tested God, so in turn, God puts Job to the test, and he presents to him the things that he'd have to do to validate his claim of authority. He says, if you're going to play God, if you're going to attack me and accuse me of injustice, then you need to prove what justice is. Verse 9, have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. He's saying that if Job is going to judge God and rule the world by Job's standard of, of, of justice, then Job needs to get on judging the wicked and the proud. He has a lot of work to do. If Job is going to make himself God, then he needs to get on asserting his authority and executing that justice that he upholds. Verse 14 should cut to Job's heart. If you do this, then I'll let you be God. You can be God if you can do the things that God does. Should Job accomplish this adorning himself in majesty and abasing the proud with a glance, then he would have been able to prove his, his complaint that God isn't just in ruling the world. 
If he could just do these things, then he could prove that he's right, that God isn't a good and just and sovereign God. But the irony is that if Job or you and I were to be able to take up this challenge that God presents here, then we would be God. We wouldn't need God. And the point is that because we are not God, because this is so absolutely impossible for Job, we don't get to stand in judgment over him when he says and does things in ways that we don't understand. It's reminiscent of Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, when the prophet says of God, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The only conclusion that we can come to is that God and God alone is the supreme Lord of the universe. And God's words might seem like they have a little bit of a bite to them. His, his response is, is forceful. And it's definitely what Job is asking for. But we should also see that this is a very good thing of God to say. He's being very loving to Job. And that's because it is loving for God to humble him. It is loving for God to humble us. It is loving for, us to, for, for him to put us in our place. For God, from God's divine perspective here, the most dangerous thing for you and for myself to think is that I'm, I'm strong, I'm capable, I'm knowledgeable, and therefore I don't need God. I can stand above him. I can judge him. This is the mindset that we have seen Job slip into. He's, he, he looked at himself and the absence of sin committed in his life. He looked at the world. He looked at his circumstances. And instead of saying, how does God want me to think about this? He, or, or who is God even despite my circumstances? He says, God is messed up. I know better than God, so I'll put him on trial. I'm going to argue my case. And this pride that he slips into is a pride that we slip into every day when we question God. It's a, a pride that mankind has slipped into ever since, ever since the first sin. It's a heart that says, I want to play God. It's a heart that says, I know better than God. I am above God. It was the first sin when Satan rebelled against God. It was the heart of original sin when Eve made a judgment for herself that what God had declared was not good to be good. Pride puts us at the center of the universe. And pride uses our pain to put us even more so into the center of ours. It turns us inward, teaching us to interpret, and identify, interpret life and our identity and God and ultimate realities through the lens of experience. But God, through the book of Job, through this speech, wants to free us from the enslavement to that dark tyranny of man-centeredness. 
He wants to bring us into the freedom and the light of God-centeredness. God is God, we are not. God is the main character, we are not. God is the main actor in the world, and we are not. And there, in that place of death to self, that is the place of freedom from exaltation. It's the place of humility. And that's where we enjoy true living, good life. The first trial that God presents to Job, the one of an attempt to adorn himself with the majesty of God, teaches Job that God is God and he is not. But still, God hasn't actually addressed the question of justice yet, so he keeps talking. And in the rest of the chapters, he talks about these two horrifying beasts, Behemoth and Leviathan. This is trial two. And what he does is essentially point to these two creatures and say, if you want to play God, then you have to be able to conquer these. That's the trial of Behemoth and Leviathan. He must conquer these beasts. But as we'll see, these beasts are far more formidable than anything that we've seen in our world. There's a lot of um, discourse within scholarship about what these Behemoth and Leviathan actually are. Some think that they are a hippopotamus and a crocodile. Um, But my take is that whatever God is actually showing to Job They are much more than just simple earthly threats. God has already shown his authority over creation in chapters 38 and 39. So if he's giving two more discourses about animals, then um, they aren't very, if, if they stand for simply physical things, simply earthly um, animals, then they don't stand apart very much from the rest of, or the rest of the first speech. But, There's also the possibility that they don't stand for just simply physical things, but as symbols for spiritual things. It definitely wouldn't mean much for Job to be able to, or to try and kill a a hippopotamus and a crocodile. Sure, he might not know what those animals are, nor he might not know um, how to kill them, but they're just animals, right? There's even evidence that that ancient Egyptians hunted crocodiles, so it wouldn't be much of a task. But when Job sees this hippopotamus and this serpent, these creatures that God presents to him in this speech, it might have brought to mind supernatural monsters of Near Eastern mythology that were probably pervasive at his time. And it could have been that, that God is inciting him to think about these animals in not just mere earthly perspective, but as supernatural realities. And so I take it that these two animals are symbols of the greatest cosmic threats to mankind and therefore to Job. They are evil and death personified. If Job wasn't satisfied with God's depiction of himself as creator and ruler over the natural world in chapters 38 and 39, then God needs to show Job that he is also supreme ruler over the supernatural too. 
God has absolute control over all things, not just the physical, but the spiritual, even over death and evil. So let's, let's look at the rest of the text. Starting with Behemoth, verse 15, God says, Behold, Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelters of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade, the, locust, the lotus trees cover him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? God puts Job face to face with this horrifying beast and says, look, I made this just like I made you. God says that even the most fearsome creature on the earth, that which has bones like bronze and fears not the turbulence of a rushing river, is a creature of his own creation. It's subject to his ultimate authority. Not only am I stronger than it, God says, and not only am I its creator, but it is part of my ordered world. And in saying he is more powerful than even the most terrifying beast, he says that he, not Job, has the power to execute justice in his world. Therefore, Job must not just be silent, but also repent of his accusation that God is not just and will not act justly on his behalf. But God doesn't just stop with behemoth. He paints another picture of another creature, Leviathan. And we see that Leviathan is just as fearsome, if not even more than behemoth. But God is still God over this monster too. Let's read on in chapter 41. As I read this, close your eyes and imagine the monster that, that God is, is depicting. God says to Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash with your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. 
Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of a row of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as stone, hard as the lower millstone. When he raises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge on the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining wake. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth, there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. In hearing this horrifying description from God, Job would have immediately made the connection that this is more than a mere animal. He would have known that this is a creature of mythical power. But underlying all of God's description of it, what do we hear? Under Leviathan runs the current of God's sovereignty. Verse 10 says it clearly, no one is so fierce that he dares to stir Leviathan up. Who then is he who can stand before me? The rhetorical questions and the exhortations to impossible action against a monster all scream at Job's inability after, after God rattles off example and example of this monster's power all in comparison to Job's feeble humanity. In the face of this command to conquer a beast, Job is humbled. God says, you have no hope of conquering this Leviathan, but I master it. What then does Job learn from Leviathan? Why is it that after hearing of this embodiment of evil, Job finally relents and submits to the Lord? There are three lessons that Job learns from Leviathan. The first is that Leviathan is to blame for suffering and not God. The suffering that he has experienced is not a direct one-to-one -one punishment for sin. This mention of these chaos beasts, of 
of Leviathan and Behemoth, these personifications of death and evil, they complicate the theology of Job and his friends. It's not as simple anymore as I am hurting, which means God hurt me, that means God is not good. There are other characters here at play, and thus Job gets a tiny little hint of what we already know from the prologue of the book. Job's suffering is not due to any sin that he committed, but because the adversary himself has taken action against him. And I do not think at all that there's, or I do not think it is a coincidence at all that Leviathan, this chaos beast of evil, is described in the same terms that Satan himself is in the garden and in the end times, a serpent. God understands Leviathan is the second. God understands Leviathan and thus God understands suffering. If Leviathan is a symbol for all that is evil in the world, then the extensive description of Leviathan shows that God is well acquainted with it. God understands evil. God recognizes that this Leviathan is a threat. He does not trivialize the danger that chaos poses to his creation. God recognizes that the presence of this evil in Job's life and in his world hurts. God knows Job's suffering. He is not foreign to it. And he knows ours. But he is not phased by it. And he is doing something about it. Which leads us to the last lesson of Leviathan. Chaos. Evil is directly under God's authority and control. And God will defeat it. Whatever this monster is, there is no doubt that there is no defeating it by man. But don't you feel the irony of this passage? When God describes this beast, there is no tremor in his voice. There is no fear in his words of battle with this monster. He is not worried. Rather, there's confidence. Verse 12 says, I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. He says that he's going to keep talking about it, boasting almost about it. As God's description goes on and on, and as the picture in Job's mind of this monster becomes more detailed and more vivid and more horrifying, as terror swells in his heart, as evil, is as evil personified towers above him, as Job grovels more and more in fear before this chaos creature, God only seems more glorious as he stands in composure above it. He towers in easy mastery above evil. God does not hesitate to elucidate at length the marvels of Leviathan because evil that prevails today as personified in this beast will lay slain before him at the last day. This monster that laughs at the rattle of javelins is laughed at as it plays in the sea that God has made. This beast that is the king even over all the sons of pride is subject to the true king who reigns over all. 
Job may not be able to pierce its jaw with a hook or take it as a servant or lay on it or lay hands on it or pierce its scales, but God can. God domesticates Leviathan like a toy, a plaything. He puts on a leash, puts it on a leash for his girls. This creature that is without fear and without comparison on the earth does not even come close in comparison to God who stands in subjection over it. Leviathan, the primordial chaos beast, the mythical amalgamation of Satan and all sin and suffering and death and disorder and deception and strife and evil, all of it is subject to God. Where there is confusion in our minds about what God is doing in evil, there is not in God's. One writer says it well. He writes, even the mystery of evil is God's mystery. Even Satan, the Leviathan, is God's Satan, God's pet, if we dare to put it like this. This means that if we suffer, we may with absolute confidence bow down to this sovereign God, knowing that while evil may be terrible, it cannot and will not ever go one tiny fraction beyond the leash on which God has put it. And it will not go on forever. Unquote. That means that if God can be confident in his power and authority over Leviathan, can we too not be confident in God when Leviathan seems to wreak havoc in our lives? Christian, whatever comes your way, recognize that Leviathan is on a leash. Death and evil are in control of the sovereign God. He is in control. And it is at this truth that finally Job repents. He sees that evil and death are under control by the sovereign God and he lays down his accusation against God. Look at what he says in chapter 42. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours is thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in, death and in dust and ashes. Job gets his answer. God is God, and he is not. And because God is God, Job does not have to solve the issue of justice in the world. God is the creator and the enactor of justice, and he can be trusted in all of his ways. And we, too, must rest in that truth that God is God, we are not. And he is God over even death, evil, and Satan. This is faith, the fear of the Lord.
that when God does things that are unexpected, when he leads us through deep waters, when life just doesn't make sense, that we do not question him or accuse him of injustice or ridicule him for malpractice, but we grow silent. For Job, this is the end of the answer. Death and evil are subject to God's authority. Period. Nothing more. And the the book of Job doesn't give us the same promises that the rest of the scripture gives us about suffering. It doesn't talk about God working all things for good like in Romans. And it doesn't talk about how he uses evil for his ultimate ends like in Genesis. It doesn't give us a view into the redemption of all things like Revelation does. But what God does say, as one author puts it, is that he is aware of the problem far more deeply than Job is. And he will address it one day. That is all. That's it. But is that not enough? God is just. He is executing justice, even when we don't see. And we must grow silent. And though the, though the book of Job doesn't give us that direct picture of how God is working all things together for good. To conclude, I want us to look at one of the other mentions of Leviathan in the scriptures. And for us who are blessed to have the full revelation of Scripture, we do get to see what happens. And I think it it not only puts our heart at, at ease, but also fills us with love and devotion to God, knowing that he does exactly what justice in our mind might expect. Turn with me to Isaiah 27, verse 1. Isaiah 27, verse 1. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet is writing, uh, uh, or writing, is telling the people of Israel about the redemption, their redemption. God's following through with what he promised to Abraham, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness to him. And in chapter 27, he writes this shocking verse about the end of time. The prophet says, in that day, the final day, the last day, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In the end, God slays Leviathan. When God finally establishes his eternal rule over all the world, bringing final judgment and salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, death and evil are finally destroyed forever. If Job can be satisfied and if he can grow silent simply at knowing that God is supreme ruler over this Leviathan, How much more can we, who know the end of the story, rest? Trust your God. He is supreme over all, and he knows what he is doing. 
So at the end of the book of Job, we come back to the very place that Job started. We must say with Job in our suffering, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, the pains that we face in our day-to-day, in our lives, it hurts. It's hard. It makes us weary. It makes us tired. It makes us nearsighted. And it is so easy to turn in. And it's so easy to make conclusions about you based on what we see in our lives. It's so easy to look at our circumstances, our, at our inability to get out of bed in the morning, at, at the, the death of a family member, at the difficulties of school, at the struggle with sin, at the battle um, with, with, with sin in the world. It's so easy to look at those things and say, God, why aren't you doing anything? How could you be good? How could you be just? And it is so, so easy to have a perspective that that sits there. And so we thank you so much that in response to Job, You not only show us that you are the perfect supreme authority over all of the created world, but even the supernatural world too. Everything is under your command. We thank you that we we can know with confidence that sin and Satan and evil and death are on a leash and that Leviathan will be slain at one day. And so I ask, Father, that even when we don't understand, when life is hard, when it doesn't make sense, that you would help us to say in our hearts, you are God, I am not. And you are in control over evil and death And you are enacting justice, even when I don't understand. Father, help us to grow silent and plant in our hearts a a deep trust for you. Father, on, on this side of the cross, we know that we can trust you because we saw you bring justice on your son as he carried our sins to that cross and paid for them. We know that you follow through as a just God. And I pray that every day we would be able to look to you and trust you. We thank you for your kindness to us in Christ that we have life. And to your kindness to us through the spirit that we have your word. Help us now to grow in our trust and our love for you 
and help us to grow silent. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Thanks, guys. Small group.